Good afternoon. Welcome to our first ever Becker's Healthcare Women's Leadership Virtual Forum. On behalf of the Becker's team, it is our distinct pleasure to host this gathering on this important topic. Although it might look a little different than what you're used to from Becker's, I can tell you right now that the panelists and I are ready to make the most of your next 60 minutes. I'm Molly Gamble, and I'm thrilled to serve as your moderator. Before I introduce our panelists today, I have one note about this forum and what you as an attendee can expect from us. This is not a training, webinar, or a lecture. Our panelists are coming together in good faith today to share their experiences, observations, and what has worked for them as female leaders. We want to make this a place for peers to share meaningful dialogue about self-identity, mentorship, gender bias, and double binds. It's our intent that other female leaders gain something from this meaningful conversation today, including a sense of community during these isolated times. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. First, we have Melinda Rutledge. Melinda is Vice President of Public Care Health Strategy in the Care Coordination Institute at Prisma Health in South Carolina. She is also Senior Vice President of Federal Affairs for America's Physician Groups and previously worked as a founding member of the leadership team at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services Innovation. Next, we have Pranali Sirmaji. She is Associate Professor and Medical Director of Clinical Finance at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. She was named among Becker's top 50 years in 2015 and using her training and experience in infectious diseases, healthcare epidemiology, and more recently, quality and finance to help improve healthcare delivery for patients. She blogs to increase awareness of issues in healthcare. Next, we have Janice Lammy. Janice is System Vice President of Marketing at Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady Health System in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She previously held Vice President and Director level roles with CHI Texas, HCA North Florida, and Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge. Janice is also the author of Creating Your Own Success Plan, a Career Success Guide for Women. Next is Nancy Vish. Nancy is president and CNO of Baylor Scott and White Heart and Vascular Hospital, Dallas and Fort Worth. A champion of hands-on leadership, Nancy has been with the hospital since 2002, the year it opened, and has been with the Baylor Healthcare System, now known as Baylor Scott and White Health, since 1996. And finally, Hashka T.K. Nelson. Hashka is a Florida native, now residing in Maryland, in the Washington, D.C. area, where she continued her career in business performance management at Kaiser Permanente. Tashka leads a team implementing strategic initiatives across care settings and serves as Mid-Atlantic State's regional co-chair of KP's business resource group, Women Empowered. Tashka founded Greeks in Healthcare, an organization dedicated to building relationships among healthcare professionals in the DC area. Melinda, Planavi, Janice, Nancy, and Tashka, let's dive right in and start this conversation by talking about self-identity as leaders. So research has shown that women will only apply for jobs if they have 100% of the qualifications, whereas men will apply even if they have only 60% of the qualifications. And this finding really carries over to a lot of women feeling they're constantly underqualified. To think of oneself as a leader means they need that next promotion, they need a title change, they need one more degree. But actually seeing yourself as a leader is so important to advancement uh, and intrinsically believing you are one is so important to advancement, but it's also not a one-time achievement. 
And I wanted to get the conversation started today by talking about this, how, how our identity to see ourselves as leaders can ebb and flow. Belinda, I'm curious to learn from you first, uh, what settings do you feel the most confident in your identity as a leader? And on the flip side of that, when do you feel the least confident? So Molly, exactly so what Molly, you just said exactly in terms said. of um, most women will feel very comfortable in situations in which um, they know the answers. They're very, have a deep understanding of the issues. I'll give you a good example. I feel the most comfortable when I'm presenting a financial review of a program or talking about a new policy that's come out of CMS or out of Congress. Um, again, it relates to, as you said, um, we uh, feel the most comfortable when we're the most competent, when we know the issue inside and out. In terms of when I feel the most insecure, even at my uh, point in my career, it is when I'm facilitating a group in which they have a diversity of opinions in an uncertain environment. So for instance, if, I, if someone had said, we want you to facilitate a group tomorrow to tell us what we have to do post COVID-19 in the organization, and could you write up uh, what our next steps would be? That by itself would, uh, even at the stage of my career, would make me feel uncomfortable um, and not that I wouldn't dive right into it, but again, it's facilitating a diversity of ideas when you have an uncertain um, answer. There, the answer is not definite. I look to your co-panelists, can anyone else think of some scenarios? That was a great overview of when I know the fact, I know the topic matter inside and out, I feel really confident and see myself as a leader. On the flip side of that, when there's diverse opinions or not a clear answer, not so much. Do any other types of settings come to mind for, for Nancy, Janice, um, Tosh, anyone else here about Tosh, when you feel the most in, in your identity as a leader? Hi, this, this is, is Sasha. I can take it on. In my Ashka, you go. Okay. Okay. In my line of work, I do um, a lot of process improvement, and I'm leading my teams to walk into areas that are not familiar to them. So they definitely have to come in and ask all the right questions to become subject matter experts quickly to be able to further understand what's being taught to them because they're students in these situations. So they make great recommendations. Um, many times in those situations, although I'm not a subject matter expert, um, pertaining to the topic at hand, um, I continue to see myself as a leader because I'm coaching them to ask the right questions. So those are situations in which I feel most comfortable so that I can um, lead. Um, but then also looking at it from their perspective, they may not be as comfortable to lead the initiatives. If I may add to that, um, I think, uh, women are most likely to be comfortable if they feel like they're being heard and uh, the environment is encouraging them to speak up and they feel supported. And uh, women are not very likely to speak up uh, or feel comfortable as a leader if there are um, people with uh, completely different personalities and especially um, some of the introverted, uh, quietish women or uh, women who come from cultures where 
it's expected for them to be quiet or not bring up problems. Um, if they're in a setting where um, there are other uh, team members who are loud and challenging, they may not feel very secure and comfortable, but uh, they can be certainly coached out of that mode. Nancy, let's check in with you too. I'm curious, we've gotten a sense so far from remarks about what types of settings or environments or situations uh, your peers feel most or least confident in their identity as a leader, but what about the people and experiences that have really strengthened that for you as an individual? Can you recall anyone or anything that comes top of mind for that? I would say that um, the strengthening your identity really is in analyzing the experiences that you have around you. And I would say that I've, I've really looked at multiple experiences and interactions along the way in my career um, from an analytical standpoint. Um, I believe that you can learn about leadership and yourself with every project that you do, every gathering that you're at, whether you're observing somebody and learning a technique or learning what seems to work or not, or if it's in a, uh, a project or part of your workload. I think one of the things that we often see leaders um, uh, miss opportunities is they stick with uh, like leaders. And I think one of the most important things is to look at outside of healthcare and those experiences that you have with others and using them as mentors. I really would also say that um, asking for feedback um, and doing personality uh, and leadership strengths testing and doing 360s is most important because that helps to give you constant feedback on yourself. But never pass up the opportunity of learning through either observation, whether you're part of the project or you are uh, observing what happens in the dynamics in other groups. So I think that's paramount in strengthening your identity as a leader. It's not only observing and learning, but also getting feedback. Right, and uh, um, Nancy's comments made me remember this uh, research study that showed the reason, a major reason why um, men are more likely to see themselves as leaders and not so much uh, for women is men get uh, repeated affirmation along the way. So um, whenever they do something or say something, they get a lot more acceptance from people around them as opposed to women who are who either remain invisible, they're not even uh, acknowledged, their presence is not even acknowledged, or when they say something, it's like they get muted compliments. Um, women are less likely to get recognized for their contributions and for um, saying, speaking up their ideas. And there's actually a solid body of research to show that. And uh, that same study also talks about how it's not so much the glass ceiling effect for women not to advance, but it's the repeated... Um, uh, cycle of affirmation and success uh, that happens uh, in visible and invisible terms along the way, like in your day-to-day -day activities, that sort of has a cumulative effect uh, along the career of uh, women. And that really resonated with me because I saw so many women leaders who um, 
felt discouraged or unsupported along the way uh, as much as I mean, I've seen some very successful women too who serve as role models but I've always wondered about the women who sort of gave up on their leadership careers entirely or um, accepted a sort of a stalling of a career uh, as that's the way things are and we need to change that. I think, Pranavi, what you just said in the study is so true, but I think that uh, one of the yeah. things that I would message out to others is really yeah. to do a lot of self-reflection on what your biases are. Whatever's happened in our growing right. up years already happened, and so we need to right. look at what are those biases, whether they were in our home or in our schools or in our yeah, coaching experiences. Yeah bias us to either be intimidated or inhibited. And therefore, yeah. and, and then you can set objectives for how you're going to do corrective action and present and see yourself as a leader. Because that's what we're going to have. We have to own it. It happened. We have biases on why we might not speak yeah. up, whether somebody is, it's a gender issue or an age issue or it's a degree right. issue. But if we can understand it, then we can take action um, as an individual to overcome those and be the best leader that yeah. we can be in each and every setting we're in. No, I totally so agree I with you, Nancy. I just want to build off of a, a term that's come up quite a bit so far has been self-reflection. And Nancy, you talked about paying attention to your experiences, your projects, who's around you, um, self-reflection on various biases you will be you will confront throughout the course of your career. I also think self-reflection seems really important. Part of it is not only seeing oneself as a leader, but behaving in a, a way that a leader needs to and setting the right boundaries, revising routines that are very familiar to us when it comes to self-care and self-reflection. Um, women especially are socialized to be great team players, invest in others, nurture. But when it comes to time to do that for you, you need to behave differently to really be an effective leader and make sure that you are taking care of yourself. Um, Belinda, I want to circle back to you. I'm, I'm curious if there's been any revisions or changes you had to make to your routines and how you lived your life, even outside of the office, that made you a more effective leader when accounting for the success of others and not just being an individual contributor. Yeah, I, I think um, it goes along with, as a woman, when you are uh, raised, uh, you really want to be empathetic to people. And in order to be empathetic, you want to find that point of connection. And so as a leader, early in your career, when you're sitting down with someone and you're talking to them about an issue, you may have a tendency to try to find that point of connection. Oh, yes, I felt the same way. Or, yeah, I was very uncomfortable with that. When, as you grow and you become more mature in your career, you realize that it's not about you and that really it's about them. And so what you want to do is not say, yes, I felt the same way. It's more of, I know that's got to be difficult for you. How can I help you more as a leader? And so um, you allow yourself not to... Um, Try to find that relatable ability in which women have that is incredible and trying 
uh, to project it uh, by trying to um, articulate the same experience you've had with them. The, the relatability skills that we have is for them to open up and share with us what they're feeling and how can we help them. So I think earlier in my career, I was more apt to try to find, yes, I feel the same way that you do. Yes, I have the same issues. Now it's a much more, I'm stepping back a little bit and focusing on them and how I can help them be successful. So it's still very much a connection, just a, a, a different strategy in connecting with others. Um, I love that, Belinda. How about how about for you, Janice? Can you think of anything that you had to revise or, or edit as you became more accountable for other success versus solely your own? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's so hard um, for us as women to focus on ourselves because we have you know folks that we're responsible for as well as our children, right? So. Um, I've had to make sure that I've taken time for myself to set those boundaries, to really reflect on what am I, what am I wanting to achieve this week? You know, going to yoga class, getting that movement into my life, that self-care is really important. But I also think that we can get energy from our home lives, whether we have children, uh, a partner, whatever our situation is with our families. It's important to balance that work in life as best we can, um, and it's tough for us to do that as women. Pashka, did you have something you wanted to add here as well? Yeah, maybe answering the question in a different way. I'm necessarily looking at how I changed my home life, but when I looked at myself as a professional, as an individual contributor versus a leader, I saw it to be a lot more important to be very transparent in communications and very vulnerable. So Valinda made a very good point in which she um, she used some feelings that come about when she's relating to um, her staff or someone that she's leading to let them know that um, she really understands how they feel. Um, just recently, just this week <laughs> with COVID, I've been working a whole lot of hours and I'm tired. Um, so I found that maybe some of the care or maybe some of the length and explanation that I would give for a directive really wasn't happening this week. And um, I was talking to my executive director yesterday and told her I truly felt bad about that. Like I felt as if I was shortchanging my staff. Um, and she continued to urge me um, as already being a transparent communicator to keep letting people know, hey, even if I need to circle back, um, I know I may not have answered you in a way that I normally do, but to be truthfully honest, I'm tired and I'm going to make sure that I'm carving out a PTO day, which was today, great, <laughs> to take some time to rest. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us on your day off. Um, first and foremost, I think that's great. That's wonderful advice, especially in mean, the past six weeks have just put so many things about leading teams to the test. So thanks for weaving in current events, Tasha. That's an excellent perspective. Let's move on a little bit more to talk about mentorship. So, Tashka, I'm going to stay with you, actually. And I, I open this question up, too, to your co-panelists after you conclude your remarks. But what are the biggest misconceptions that you've encountered or identified when it comes to mentorship, especially mentorship involving women? So I have four answers for you, but I want to pause if I could, because I wanted to make sure as we're talking through it, I give a big thank you to all of the essential personnel and healthcare professionals 
um, that are here with us because um, everyone's been working really hard with COVID. With a special thank you to my parents who are watching. My mom's an RN of 40 years and my um, dad is a medical supplier in Jamaica. So thank you. And now misconceptions, <laughs> the first one. Um, one of the misconceptions um, that I consistently hear is that we really need mentors to teach them to be as strong as men. And if we really think about it, if that's the case, what do men need mentors for? They don't need mentors to teach them to be as strong as they are. That's in their DNA. We really, as women, should be looking at uh, mentors for the same reason that men look at mentors. Um, and I jotted down, I'm not going to go through all of them, but Inc.com had a really great article about mentors and some of their purposes. And if you look at some of the themes for um, the bullet points that they identified, essentially, your mentor is providing information and knowledge, but they're also a trusted soundboard so that you can throw ideas at them and really hear some unfiltered, unbiased feedback so that they can help you see things maybe that you're not seeing yourself. So um, that's one part. Another part, um, when we look at mentors, they are the disciplinarians that will hold you accountable with those check-ins. So um, I've heard that the what by when, essentially what by when is, okay, what is it you're gonna accomplish and by when? And um, accountability is huge when we need to think about achieving our goals. Um, one of the other misconceptions, women should only seek women mentors and that is totally false. Um, I've been grateful in the course of my career to have what I call a mentor squad. <laughs> and that's made up of men and women. Um, I have Beverly Kuykendall. She teaches me and really mentors me about presence and public speaking. I have Al Campbell. He really mentors strategic chances. Zachary Schiffman. Um, he really continues to mentor me on entrepreneurial spirit, even though I don't talk to him often. Um, and Delinda Washington. She's mentoring and um, talking about balancing self-care and ambition. So with that, um, as we think about some of the misconceptions as women, we really have to think about the fact that, yes, we are special. Also, as we look to grow as women, we shouldn't only look to focus on being and we need to focus on the technical skills and the full person that we are. Pranavi, I'm curious too, in your experience, when it comes to mentorship, have there been any misconceptions that you've run into that you feel in this space that we've created today would be a good time to address or correct? Sure, I think um, um, mentorship is uh, not about uh, uh, disciplining somebody, like uh, Tashka said, uh, that's a different role. I think mentors are more, they're there for you to, um, grow as a professional. So um, they're serving a different role. They're not the bosses who are holding you accountable for tasks and deadlines. They are people who are helping you grow your strength, helping you recognize your strengths. And, uh, you know, like strengths are by definition things that you do naturally that uh, you do it with, do them without thinking. So uh, if it's actually very, um, possible for someone to not know what their strengths are. So um, mentors help you see yourself objectively and uh, help you grow your strengths uh, in a better way. And uh, we don't have enough time to overcome our weaknesses in our lives. We might as well utilize our strengths better 
So, um, and then the other thing about mentorship is it's not a give and uh, receive relationship. It's a two-way re relationship. It's not a one-way relationship. Uh, I see um, mentees uh, feeling entitled to mentorship. There is no such thing. Um, it's a totally a two-way mutually fulfilling relationship. That's what I would say. Good distinction. I think even I, I've heard of people asking uh, younger generations for reverse mentorship, which I, I think is a, a wise term and yeah. wise function. Yeah. Um, yeah. Janice, I want to check in with you because I think, you know, as Tashka mentioned, we can't really have the conversation without acknowledging the past six weeks and how much has changed. And mentorship already for so many women and men can feel as though yeah. it's added work and it's more work to take on and we know we should do it, we want to. Uh, it also just comes down to our bandwidth. Um, the past six weeks, we've seen leaders and their organizations go through tremendous hardship. People in times of crises have to turn to a kind of command control leadership style where their decision-making is a bit more autonomous. They might not have as many opportunities for coaching or discussing decisions to be made. Uh, I'm curious where, this, where mentorship fits in in an environment like this. Um, especially as health systems face some pretty troubling financial positions right now. Um, resources might not be as plenty as they were even several weeks ago. Is there anything leaders with us today should just keep in mind about mentoring in a times of crisis? Um, because this is a crisis, it's a pandemic where it's not just a couple of days, it's several weeks. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, it's definitely a marathon and not a sprint, as we're all saying. And I think this is really an excellent time to be a mentor. And I've seen a number of opportunities already. There's so much uncertainty right now, and people are just afraid of everything from germs to losing their jobs and everything in between. Um, so there's no precedent to really follow, right? We've, we've gone through hurricanes here in the South. We know how those work, but we've never gone through anything like this. So it's an opportunity to really help young men understand their role and packing away their fears and managing their team members effectively. Uh, I've seen this already in a couple of the young managers I work with, and they've had to grow exponentially in a very short period of time. But speaking with them, and, and they were sharing how you know, they have fears about that, that their direct reports are fearing things, that I could hear them actually fearing themselves. So it gave me the opportunity to really kind of chat through okay, how do we pack that away and how do we show up strong for our team members so that they feel confident in leadership as we move forward? So I think it's a time to step up and show confidence that we will get through this. It is a critical time to reach out and connect virtually, check in on those hard and soft issues, relate with, with and, and provide really good guidance. Um, so your, your mentees out there are really needing you right now, and I know you all know that. But it's taking that time to reach out and instinctually kind of feel what they're needing and try to guide them with, with that. I'd like to say uh, in reference to uh, this uh, pandemic that we're all in the midst of and um, the experiences that we're all going through, um, don't let a good crisis go to waste from a leadership standpoint. Um, each and every one of us has been either a giver or a receiver of uh, 
changes, policies, updates, um, and dealing with uh, the ramifications of that, whether it's change management or if it's, um, you know, pivoting on different issues based on what we're getting from a worldview and, and from a national view. Um, I think this is our time right now as individuals is to learn from some of the worst and some of the best. I mean, we've seen whether it's locally or from our own communities or nationally, uh, what has happened. Um, and, um, and so you've seen uh, reactions, you've seen people uh, uh, present and give misinformation. Uh, we've seen whether it's on our local levels, how uh, information is given and how you perceived it um, and or how you saw your audience receive it. And uh, so we have an opportunity right now to say, what have we observed and or been a part of that we want to add to our leadership profile? Um, and uh, we always, I've always said as well, is, is you may have a bad experience and you still learn from that because that you're learning something that you won't do again or you wouldn't do to replicate that um, in your own practice. So don't let a good crisis go to waste. This was an opportunity for all of us to have seen what worked for us if we were leading or if we were receiving and as we're observing as individuals what has gone on in our local areas, um, the good and the bad. This is, uh, this is Valinda, and I'd like to echo on that. I think it's interesting that when they've assessed leaders around the world, the assessment is that many of the female leaders actually have come out on top in terms of a perception. And I think that is because when we are dealing in a crisis situation in which we're dealing with right now, the best of all of us come out in terms of, of female traits. We're able to identify with people. We're able to articulate a very empathetic manner. Um, we're also able to give facts in a very, very calm manner. And I think it's maybe because of growing up, we've um, all taken care of children and babysat children. So we know that when you come into a, a very highly emotional um, a room or a situation, the first thing you want to do is give that uh, reassurance to everyone that you understand where they're coming from, you understand this is a time of crisis, and we're going to get through it together as a team. So I think the very um, traits um, that are identified female, I think it's interesting that they're being acknowledged as some of the best leaders. Um, uh, in this crisis, so it's a it's it's a lesson for all of us to uh, to utilize outside of this crisis. So, I, if I may add one uh, quick um, thing to the topic, uh, I agree with everything my co-panelists have said. Uh, what I have seen in the clinical world uh, during the COVID situation, there are more uh, moments where. Um, there is frustration and uh, there is the uh, uh, disappointment about uh, certain um, high stress interactions and uh, those offer a quick coaching and a quick uh, mentoring opportunities and there are several of them. Um, 
So one thing that helped me uh, work with a mentee of mine was just expressing confidence, saying that, no, I have confidence in you. Don't let this bring you down. Uh, you are a terrific leader. Uh, you are influencing the uh, thought and action of this uh, consulting um, a physician. So go back again and uh, state your position and talk about it. And uh, she went back and uh, revisited the conversation and uh, she gained more confidence as a, in the process. So um, I've seen this uh, over and over again, especially during a crisis. That kind of circles back, Pranavi, to our, our first point of conversation about seeing ourselves as leaders. Um, so what a great remark to work in and, and the yeah. analysis Belinda, that we're starting to see of leaders who have been really effective um, throughout this yeah. crisis. I, I've seen the same where a lot of leaders in um, New Zealand, for instance, uh, fe those female traits you mentioned when it comes to calm demeanor and de delivering information, empathy, bring right. um, spirit, uh, those really have taken a forefront, which has been fascinating to watch. Um, yes. want to make sure we're moving right along here, given our limited window of time, we're doing great so far, but we can't have this conversation without acknowledging gender bias. Um, some gender bias is really sneaky. We don't realize it or see it right away. Others is right smack dab in front of us. That's tough not to ignore, um, or tough to ignore. I'm sorry. And I'm curious how we've all had different experiences when it comes to confronting gender bias, dealing with that. And now as leaders of teams and people who work closely with others and lead others, I'm curious to know how those experiences and perhaps what you wish that a boss would have done for you in the past or a coworker would have done for you has informed how you manage others, lead others, work with others. Um, Melinda, how, how do you account for your experiences with gender bias when it comes to combating this phenomenon on the teams you work most closely with? Yeah, so I, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge that it's real. It's not in any of our imaginations. Uh, we all deal with it on a regular basis. So I think that's the first. Um, when it happens, your sort of your first thought is, have I imagined it? Am I overreacting here? So I think that you have to acknowledge it's real. It's a part of us growing up in the society that we grow up with. Um, I think uh, that um, when you're in leading a team that you're able to see some gender bias, I think how you deal with it has to be through soft diplomacy. Uh, you certainly can't do it through an email. You have to sit down with the individual. And it is not about correcting the behavior. If you focus on the behavior, what that individual is going to do is just know that when they're with you, they're not to have that behavior. But that doesn't change the underlying issue that's there. So when you sit down with the individual in which you are in charge of a team and you're able to see it happen, um, what you want to do is, is help that person be able to reorient their thinking so that they begin to see their implicit bias that they may not even be aware themselves. So they begin to modify and change their behavior. You're not pointing out the behavior. They're beginning to understand what is the bias that you've had with that. So it becomes a teachable moment and not as I'm setting you down to have this counseling session with you because of what I saw in a meeting. 
Um, the the organizations that I have seen to be the most effective in terms of dealing with gender bias are the organizations that have moved to evidence-based leadership, that the leadership and the assessment of leadership is on objective assessment. Um, when you move to evidence-based leadership, it begins to eliminate the biases that we all have. So you're able to look at leaders and their actions and their results from a very objective um, uh, perspective. And Belinda, I have a couple follow-up questions for you. One being that um, I think the way you put it, am I imagining this? I think that is just so relatable um, for women, especially those who might be early on in their careers or perhaps um, are just getting settled into the professional environment. Um, what helped you surmount that hesitancy or even that self-doubt? Was it a, a great group of colleagues that you talked about things with, friends, learning more? I, I guess I'm curious what helped you kind of move past that point and, and realize, no, right. this is not, this is an actual issue, it's real, and, and to be productive about it. Yeah, so um, I think you've got to have a group of colleagues um, that you trust, other females that you can sort of sit down with and say, this is what happened. Do you think um, I'm making a mountain out of a molehill? Um, was it, um, did I misinterpret it? And uh, uh, two things can happen. One, particularly if they were in the same situation that you were, they're able to either validate your perception or say, no, no, Valinda, I, I think you didn't see it correctly. Um, that isn't what that person meant. So that's number one, to validate your perception. Then if they have validated your perception, having them helps then you articulate how you're going to be uh, go about in resolving the issue in a very non-objective way. So if it's something that has sort of um, pushed your gut level a little bit, your buttons and you're like sort of emotional about it, you certainly don't wanna go in and sort of have a conversation with someone, someone um, either above you or um, reports to you and that you are still reacting from an emotional point of view. So having that conversation with another female colleague allows you to sort of get the emotion out of the way. And in fact, you can actually role play, sort of say, how does it sound if I say this to the person? Do you think um, I'm coming across as too emotional? Because if you have too much emotion in your voice, it's going to make the individual back off and they're not gonna hear what this situation is because they're reacting so much from the emotional point of view that they're hearing from you. They're worried that you're gonna start crying. They're worried that you're gonna start yelling at them. They're not sure what's gonna happen, but they can hear the words. So I think having another colleague, one, to validate your perception, and then two, to help uh, alleviate some of the emotional um, uh, buildup that may be with you. So when you go in, it's a non-emotional conversation. 
Um, I'd add to what Valinda had said is, is as you are uh, validating your perceptions, um, I would make sure that you also have a male colleague that you can uh, run situations by and, um, and get input, especially if there's one that's been in the same room when you've experienced or um, uh, have some feelings about whether a situation was uh, very biased. But I think as we talk about gender bias, um, that is soup to nuts, what that could be. It could be something as small as I had said the other day um, to someone who does not know the members of our board, one of our board members said X, Y, or Z. The response was, well, what did he think about that X, Y, or Z, and used the word he. Um, and it was a natural um, response and coming from a biased, uh, gender biased standpoint. And in some of those situations, that's where in almost all of them, I will gently call out, you said he. It's, it could be a she or a he. Um, but if you are in tune to these conversations, you will notice um, that there are biases. You may even find yourself um, participating in a bias. Um, oftentimes you'll see who sits where in a room and, and or who sits at the head of the table. Um, many of us may have grown up in situations or in families where the father sat at the head of the table. Maybe you have your own family now and the father sits at the head of the table. Those are things that as women, we are allowing a social situation that ultimately biases people subconsciously or consciously as they uh, grow up and become uh, leaders. So uh, it goes back to something I said earlier, which is being very, very aware and, um, and analyzing those situations of your own behaviors, but also others. I oftentimes um, bring that up when I'm talking about safety and the need for people to speak up for safety in a hospital. Um, that's speaking up whether it's just safety or any other issue that may be coming up and what are those things that may bias you from not speaking up based on your audience. Right. And uh, thank you, Nancy, for that. Uh, that, that was um, uh, uh, amazing, the uh, very detailed. Uh, uh, the thing I wanted to say about add to Valinda uh, and uh, Nancy about gender bias is, you know, gender is not the only difference between two people. Uh, there are so many other differences, uh, and they are at play all the time. So. That's what makes it so hard to call out gender bias, uh, unless it's very overt, explicit, and repeated in nature. Um, and then um, I think some of the my co-panelists are uh, more experienced in calling them out, uh, especially uh, with direct reports and colleagues. Um, the, um, the point about um, emotion, for women especially, um, there is um, evidence to show that uh, when we gain a negative emotion, it actually helps uh, uh, have the cortex uh, override the amygdala, which is the location in the brain that controls our emotions. Uh, if we let the amygdala take over, then um, it takes about 
four hours to settle down. So we don't want the amygdala to run away uh, from under the cortex. So using words, uh, naming positive emotions as well as negative emotions, um, that's an advice I gave myself long ago and uh, that's an advice I continue to give. And that has helped uh, correct for some of the emotionality as in men tend to bring up uh, emotion conflicts in a low context uh, situation, whereas uh, women tend to do that. But then there are implicit biases at play. Um, we promote gender stereotypes by ascribing more emotion to women, uh, by expecting women to show more emotions, because the flip side is we expect women to show more positive emotions in the workplace than men. Uh, we don't worry about it if we don't if men don't display positive emotions but we do um, tend to dislike women if they're not showing positive emotions at work and I know Molly you didn't plan this but this may be a great segue to your next question uh, but I wanted I just wanted to put that on the table that we are all biased uh, consciously or subconsciously and uh, it's Consciously correcting for it and consciously acknowledging them uh, helps uh, navigate our day-to-day -day leadership work. Absolutely. My my next question builds on this wonderfully, Pranavi, and I know we didn't plan that, but um, you know the regulation of emotions that a lot of women do at work can almost feel at times like a second job. Um, even when we're talking about where one sits in the room, the, our voice. Um, so many of these really important cues. I'm curious how this will, uh, the society pr previously really upheld in-person connection over virtual. Um, so given the logistics of a lot of health systems and locations, you know, virtual work was part of everyday life, but now we're moving into an era and we're already there where this question will likely come up. Is there any reason this needs to be done virtually, which would have been asked weeks ago to now, is there any reason we need to be in person to do this? You even have the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments by teleconference. Uh, I'm curious if the remote nature of work over the next several weeks, if not months, um, and being having virtual connections to your colleagues and your bosses, to the, those board meetings, I'm curious if you think this will help or hinder um, gender bias in terms of it perpetuating, or if you think everything moving virtually will create a more level playing field. Janice, do you have any thoughts on this one? Oh, Janice, I think we might have you on mute. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, I definitely have some thoughts about this and thank you for letting me know I was on mute. Uh, so right now things are so much less formal than we're used to. You know. Those of us in administration are used to being in conference rooms and suits, and now we're in our, at our kitchen tables and we're uh, in our yoga pants, and, and it's just completely different. And people are adjusting to this remote working in their own ways, right? So it, it feels much more like a level playing field at the moment because we're kind of all in this together. We're all kind of figuring out as we go, and we're helping each other out. You know, this has come up a, a little bit on, on our discussion already, but I think women could make some really great strides in being perceived as more valuable during this time because we are nurturers, right? 
So we have the opportunity to really help people guide themselves through this time instinctually and, and know when to reach out to someone who's struggling. Like I mentioned before, my young managers who were really kind of struggling and, and, and really reflecting their thoughts on their direct reports. So I think that, that, you know, that might intensify gender bias for some, but, you know, if it helps us emerge as stronger leaders, that might be a good thing. So I think that if we take don't let any uh, crisis go, you know, unused. <laughs> like Nancy was talking about, take advantage of every crisis. If we take our gender differences and capitalize them in a positive and meaningful way at this time, I think it can really help move us forward. Natasha, how are your thoughts on this? Do you have any, any insights as to how this may either intensify or really reduce the likelihood of gender bias? Um, as you've noticed in the past. Yeah, I think um, based on the fact that working from home is more to um, exemplify our value by deliverables or, you know, these emails are coming back and forth, our phone calls are happening, um, and we're able to more get to the root cause of what we need to get done and get it done pretty fast versus um, putting so much focus on relationship building. And that's something that we do more so with an in-person presence. Um, and as we look at the comparison of women versus men, um, it's been often said that men are stronger at relationships than women. And if that aspect of criteria is removed from the, um, from the situation, maybe we can um, maybe we can excel as we look at the gender bias that we're currently um, faced with. Let's move on and we're gonna wrap up our discussion today. We've already covered so much ground, but we would be remiss if we didn't bring up the, the likability trap. So this term, this is a paradox, it really goes by several different names, uh, double bind, catch 22, double standard, and it really boils down to research that shows female leaders much more than their male counterparts face the need to be warm and nice as well as competent and strong. But the problem is these qualities are often seen as opposites. So the, it's an impossible bind many women feel in which when you're being strong, you get criticism for being cold. And when you're being warm, you get invite perceptions that you're a pushover and perhaps people don't take your decision-making or you as seriously. Um, I'm curious how your relationship with likability has evolved over the course of your careers. Can someone point to where they stand with it today and how that has changed since early on? Now, I'd like to speak to that if I could, Molly. Um, you know, earlier in my career, I was really focused on being that tough person not I'm not here to make friends I'm here to do a good job and, and I was very task oriented um, and so as I've learned and actually as I became a mother and, and became more of uh, maternalistic I really learned that there's so much value in that warmth um, that men can't really bring to the table so now in my career uh, I really focus on building that connectedness uh, getting to know people personally, as well as being, you know, a firm, diligent manager and micromanaging when I have to, but trying not to, to have too many of those times in, in, uh, to deal with. But I think likability can be a strength for us. 
as we move forward. So it sounds I, like what I'm hearing is likability motivated you to have stronger relationships with people who really got to know you um, before they made a judgment about you as a person when you were demonstrating strength or demonstrating competence or warmth. Um, those relationships and building stronger connections with people helped you kind of get over any hangups about likability. Right. Belinda, did you want to add to that as well? Yeah, um, I began to uh, define the difference between likability because just like everyone else early in my career, I wanted everyone to like me. And as uh, time went on, I realized that that wasn't going to happen with some of the decisions that I would be have to make as a leader, that that simply was not realistic. And so, one, I began to realize that that was the nature of being a leader and to be, um, you have to be okay with that, that you are not going to be likable <laughs> to, for everybody and that that is not the goal and that the goal is to relate to people, to be uh, um, um, as... Um, uh, Nancy and uh, Janice has previously said, it's more of being a sounding board. It's more of being empathetic. It's more reaching out to the other person to find out where they're coming from rather than looking for, are you going to like me or not? And once you're able to move your your perception away from are they liking me or not versus I want to make sure that I'm relating to them and I'm hearing them. I think that becomes less important to you. Belinda, I could not agree more with what you said. Um, as you, uh, you have to be careful. And we had some of this conversation uh, uh, a couple of days ago uh, about likability, because you do want to be liked. But I have seen uh, people make the mistake where they have compromised decisions and or doing the right thing because they focus so much more on likability. So I think you have to approach that word with caution. I think being an authentic leader and never compromising your ethics or your values, and then ultimately, you have to realize that not everyone will like the decision that you made. Hopefully they respect you and, um, and they understand that you are doing what is right or in the best interest. Um, and so uh, just caution with the word likability. Don't compromise ethics and values. Be authentic. And I, as Belinda had said, be relatable um, and be empathetic. Um, and even when your decision or recommendation isn't something that others may like you for, showing the reasons and speaking from an empathetic standpoint, if you can understand the vantage points there, is most important. No, and that's such a good point. And Belinda, I'm gonna circle back to you, but you know, one follow-up question here is, women have a unique experience in terms of um, likeability, yes, that's one part of it, but just making mistakes in general. Women have been shown to be judged so much more harshly for when they make missteps as compared to their male counterparts. And this can result in lower confidence, missed opportunities, really high aversion to risk. How have you combated this uh, yourself as, as a professional and also for women around you, um, just so that when they err, which is human, um, they aren't 
punish in a way that will shape them and influence them and hold them back for the rest of their professional life. Right. Yeah. So I will tell you that is exactly true, that we're judged much more harsher uh, than um, males as it comes when mistakes are happening. But it's not only external, it's also internal. We judge ourselves much harder when we make mistakes. Men, on the other hand, have a tendency to just roll with it. Um, in fact, at times, there are some of my male colleagues that would never even acknowledge that they ever had, that they ever made a mistake. We're both internal and external. We have a tendency to beat ourselves up, and people judge us uh, very negatively with mistakes. The answer is us reframing it, reframing it to ourselves first, because it starts that negative talk that, gee, I made a mistake, I really shouldn't be in this role, I'm in over my head, I knew it all the time. So it starts that negative talk. So you've got to stop the negative talk by saying, it, it really was not a mistake, it was a learning opportunity. And now I know what I'm gonna do differently uh, going forward. I've learned from this situation. And then if you have a male colleague or uh, another female colleague that says something in a very critical nature, you know, I can't believe you made that mistake. You say it was it was a very painful learning opportunity, but now I know what I'm gonna do going forward. Switching it both internally and externally to reframe it from a mistake to a learning opportunity. And now I know what I'm gonna be doing from this time forward. Belinda, I, I heard two words um, and I heard own it. And essentially, I really feel as if you were, um, you know, really empowering women to own the fact that these mistakes happen or um, errors happen. And as we own it and reframe it, as you said, um, we're able to move forward and others will allow us, um, will be able to move forward with us. I thought that was great, Belinda. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you know, reframing it, just think about the way we, we treat our own uh, direct reports. When they make mistakes, we don't throw them in the, the trash can. Mm -hmm. We help them learn from them and move forward. And that's exactly how we should treat ourselves. Good point. I love that. I think especially, you know, to keep that top of mind during these trying times when um, professionally, personally, in every realm of life, there's just been so much upheaval um, to have a little bit of compassion for ourselves and to think of things that way, Belinda, and your co-panelists is just remarkably helpful. So we are, this went so fast, we are coming up against our hour. So let me stop here and thank Janice, Tashka, Belinda, Pranavi, and Nancy for their time, their thoughtfulness, and their insights today. Um, and to our attendees who joined us, thank you for taking some time out of your day to be part of our first virtual forum. I hope we have provided you with some food for thought and sense of connection at the very least. If you submitted any questions or comments to us, we will be sure to follow up with you. And finally, just major thanks to my colleagues at Becker's Healthcare, uh, all the women and men whose hard work made this happen and go from a planned hotel space in Chicago to all of your respective homes and offices. Um, it was tremendous effort by them and we're so grateful for it. And a major kudos to my partner in crime on this project, Taylor Ross, who has been a joy to work with and kept all of us here on track. So on behalf of Beckers, stay healthy, stay safe, and we hope you will keep this important conversation going about women and leadership within your own organizations. Thank you very much.